So we start the same way every time. Let's all take a minute, close our eyes, feet flat on the floor. Deep breath in. Blow it out and let's try to find that little place, that little flame, just an inch or two below our belly buttons. That place where power lives, where strength lives, where truth lives. If you can't feel it, just imagine it. Drop your breath down to that place. Feel the floor below your feet, your butt on the cushion or the chair or wherever you're sitting. Feel into your body. And breathe. Let go of anything that's going to keep you from being present on this call. <clears throat> anything in your outside life that's going on, it will be there in an hour. You can let it go. Remove any internal distractions. Place your hand on that spot we were just talking about, just an inch or two below your belly button. Feel your breath filling there. Your center, nobody else's. Your truth, nobody else's. Put your other hand up on your heart. Feel the connection between the two, our power, our love, our sense of doing in the world, our sense of safety in the world, our sense of feeling. Feel the interplay between the two. and feel how presence is the magic that connects them both. Begin to come back into your body. You can wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers, roll your shoulders back. Welcome back into you. Take your time, begin to slowly open your eyes and come back into the room come back into us. Beautiful. <clears throat> Excuse me. So gang, about four years ago, almost to the day, I think it may be four years ago, next week or so, I drove from Santa Barbara down to Los Angeles and walked in for the first time to a place called the Against the Stream Meditation Center in Santa Monica. And I sat through the meditation and the discourse after, 
And then because I chugged a bottle of water on the drive down there, I went and used their bathroom. And I came out of the bathroom and looked immediately to the right and there was a cork board. And on the cork board, there was a piece of paper tacked up and it said, the year to live program. And I went, that's fascinating, what is this? And I went home and Googled it and then eventually got on the phone with someone uh, and talked someone at the Against History Meditation Center and talked about the Year to Live program. And it was a 12-month-long ordeal that would keep me in Los Angeles. And at the time, I had just recently found out I was getting divorced. Perhaps, she wasn't sure yet. And just recently found out that my business partnership was also ending. He wasn't that sure yet. And I was pretty sure that my relationship with drugs and alcohol was also over. Pretty damn sure. So a lot of things in my life were up in the air. So I couldn't commit to 12 months in Los Angeles. But it's a, a whole nother story. About three months later, I made a decision that when I found out my marriage was over and my business partnership was completely over and I had this massive amount of space in my life that I was gonna take the entire next year and live what I called the year to live project in which I would live all of 2016 as if it were my last year alive. And I used a year to live as a, a guide for that project. And it was the most remarkable and transformative year of my life, especially at a time when I had just gone through so much loss. And so why do I tell you that story? Well, most of you know who our guest is on the call, but for me, this is a massive, massive personal full, cir full circle moment because our guest tonight started the Against the Stream, Stream Meditation Center. And I came into that building at a time when I had just lost just about everything that I had ever built or thought that I ever wanted. And I'll let him speak for himself in a minute, but I believe that now we are at a different point and I'm the one facilitating a conversation for someone who's also experienced a significant amount of loss. So those of you who don't know who I am, welcome to the uncivilized, unplugged podcast. Uh, a couple weeks ago, someone said, you should really do a podcast. And I did one in the normal podcast fashion and didn't find it all that stimulating. So I said, huh, you know what I really want to do when I go, when I hear a podcast, I always think, man, I wish I could have been in the room with them. That would be super cool. So I opened up this idea to what if we did this live and what if we did this on Zoom and how would that not only affect the audience, would that make me nervous? Would that change the conversation? knowing that it was real, it was organic, it was, it was a thing. And so here we are, just a couple of weeks later, and it's a, it's a massive success. My name is Traver Bohm. I'm the founder of the Uncivilized Men's Movement, Man Uncivilized, the course, as well as the Uncivilized Nation. And my personal mission is to change the way one million men express their masculinity. At a time when I kind of think we need to do some work, it's by taking what I believe is the inherent primal masculine in men, something that's not very popular right now, but adding in a massive amount of the divine masculine and consciousness. And those two points, primal and divine, are important to keep in our 
our conversation, they're going to be in our conversation tonight. And so keep them in your consciousness. Now, usually when I say, let's frame the hour, this is what it's going to be. I want you guys to think that you're sitting in my living room with a guest and you're just overhearing a conversation. But I think tonight there's a different frame. And tonight we have to say, the setup has to be differently because we are going to be talking about things that are really uncomfortable. We are living now in extraordinarily unprecedented times. It's the very reason my movement exists. There's a very reason why I work with men every day. There's a reason why there's a men's movement happening. Masculinity is being redefined. And in my humble opinion, it's being done horribly. Right. Just this week, we had the APA come out and say stoicism, aggression and dominance and risk taking are bad things in men. So let's just get rid of them. We have a Gillette commercial that's kicking up all kinds of internet tizzies. There is there's an alchemization. There's something in the air if you don't feel it with uh, with masculinity. And we are living at a time when social media is the new trial place and the court of law is public opinion. The public opinion is now truth. And that's really, really fucking scary to me. And I think it's really, really dangerous. When we're having guilt and innocent determined by the number of people who believe or the number of people who don't believe and or ramifications without a trial, without, a, without due process. That's the direction the civilized world's going in. And I don't think it's, it's getting, we're not working more towards freedom. Uh, tonight, we are going to talk about massive topics. And my week has been fascinating. I would love to share some of the emails I've gotten that have said, don't do this. This is, you're dead in the water as soon as this conversation is over. Fuck them. Right? Have we gotten to a place where we can't even have conversations? That's the question I asked this morning. Like, have we really gotten to a place where we can't have conversations? And more importantly, have we gotten to a place where we can't have conversations about the things we need to be having conversations about most? That's a big question. And so I want to frame this by saying, my goal, just full transparency, my goal here is to have conversations and look at things from all the ways that people really want to but are afraid to or can't because the social ramifications are too high. We are not here for a trial. We are not here to decide innocence or guilt. We're here to look at truth from a number of different angles. My role here tonight is to play devil's advocate. I'm going to ask questions that upset people. If you're listening to this, my name is Trevor Bohm, and I'm going to ask you questions that upset you. Take a deep breath. We're going to do this. And I also have to admit that I have personal bias. I run a men's movement. I have very, a lot in common, which will come out through this conversation with our speaker tonight. I am a man. He and I have the same haircut, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> We, are, we have the same stylist, we like to call it. So I want to acknowledge that from the get-go. I'm going to try to be as unbiased as I can, but know inherently I have them. That's the frame. We need to be having these conversations. And so with that, 
introduction, please allow me to introduce our guest, Noah, Noah Levine. Noah, I'm going to let you speak for yourself and on, on your own behalf, but before we say anything, let me first say thank you for coming on. Thank you for having a conversation that people say we shouldn't have. And personally, thank you for the work that you've done in the world, the good you've done in the world, the people you've helped, and personally, how much that transformed my life. I have been to refuge recovery meetings. I read your book when I decided to quit drinking and smoking pot and living a numb life, and it was a massive influence. So thank you. And I would love for you to take over and tell us to people who don't know who you are. I know a number of people on this call know exactly who you are and they're, they're waiting. But for those, of pe those people who don't, can you give us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are, how you built what you built? Please. Sure. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And uh, I'm curious as anybody where this conversation will go. Mm. My... Um, my background is uh, of teenage drug addiction and rebellion and incarceration that uh, brought me in 1988 to being uh, locked up for the umpteenth time. And my father, Stephen Levine, the author of The Year to Live and a, you know, a, a well-known well author and teacher uh, in the 70s and 80s and 90s especially, you know, I grew up with this meditation teacher. I had my own suffering, my own trauma, my own uh, difficulties, dissatisfaction, angst, that for me led to crime and drugs and incarceration. And at 17 years old, my dad said, I was sitting in a padded cell after a suicide attempt, and, and he said, uh, how about some meditation practice? And I'm sure I'd been offered mindfulness meditation in the past, uh, and it never occurred to me that it would be a good idea, but I was desperate enough in that moment in the midst of active drug addiction, alcoholism, and looking at years of incarceration to uh, have the willingness to say, I got to do something different. And I started meditating. I sat in my cell and tried to pay attention to my breath and tried to ignore my mind tried to count my breath out one in two. Every time my attention went back into thinking about what's gonna happen at court, what's prison gonna be like, the terror of the future, or my mind went to the past and all of the shame and regret and resentment about all of the pain in my life and um, all of the blame that my mind was doing, blaming myself, blaming everyone else. I just kept coming back to the present and it was the beginning of a meditation practice. And you know, when I started meditating back then, I couldn't do it very well at all, but I got it right from the beginning. There's something powerful here in being able to ignore the mind and disobey the mind rather than doing what my mind is telling me to do, which is suffer about the future and the past there is a refuge in the present. Even though that present time refuge was a padded sail in a locked facility, <laughs> it wasn't like, oh great, like this wonderful present, the present sucked. But that fucked up present moment was better than 
what my mind told me the future was going to be like and what my memory told me about the past. And so mindfulness became um, a life-saving, life-transforming practice for me back then, 30, over 30 years ago. And I addressed my addiction, um, got sober, stayed sober. And, you know, I found in, in, um, in the beginning, I think the first couple years I was spiritual shopping kind of, like I heard in the 12 step rooms, you have to have a spiritual experience. You have to have a higher power. And I was skeptical. I kind of, I came in certainly as an atheist and they said, well, try being like an agnostic and, you know, like have an open mind about these things. And I was like, oh, I'll try. And, but it was only in meditation that I was finding any relief. The prayer didn't make sense to me. The theistic concepts didn't make sense to me that there was a, a, a God that was going to remove my cravings and my self-centeredness and my didn't make sense, never made sense. I couldn't get my mind around that sort of magical thinking of uh, theism. But in Buddhism, I was finding this very practical solution, this, this tool that if I pay attention, I see the impermanence of things. And if I let go, and, and, if, and if I see the impermanence of things, I see that whatever's happening, it'll change. It'll arise, it'll pass. Can I tolerate it? Can I learn to, and, and then I started to learn about rather than meeting pain with hatred and resentment and aversion, can I meet it with some kindness and some compassion and some tenderness and, and some acceptance? And in the beginning, it's really just tolerance. Can I learn to be uncomfortable? And the answer was yes, I'm, I can learn to be uncomfortable. I can stop running from my pain and learn to be uncomfortable. And so anyways, you know, long, long story, and I could go on and on, but long story um, is that I found in Buddhism something that made sense to me. I found in recovery a community of people that were my people, other recovering people who were trying to do some form of spiritual practice, even though I didn't really resonate with a lot of the practices in the recovery rooms, I resonated with the community, the fellowship. In Buddhism, we call it Sangha. It was so important for me to have sober friends. I was also very much involved in the punk scene from a young age. And in the punk scene in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, there was more punks becoming spiritual. And there was bands like Youth of Today and, um, and the Cro-Mags and, and Bad Brains. And you know, Youth of Today became shelter and they became like Hindu yogi punks. And so then I had that influence of like, these are my people, drug-free, straight-edge, spiritual rebellion. And I just was, you know, I got very, I think uh, as an addict, <laughs> I tend to do things all the way. <laughs> and so when I started meditating, I got very serious about it, started doing retreats, started wanting, you know, going from this kind of nihilistic, self-destructive lifestyle to like, actually, I want to get enlightened. I've heard about this thing called liberation, enlightenment, freedom, and I want that. That's what I've been seeking. That's what I was seeking in the crack and the needles and the booze. 
I was seeking freedom and I was getting temporary avoidance of my pain. And then Dharma gave me a, a, a solution to actually healing and to recovering. After some years of sincere practice, my teacher said, hey, we want you to, to, to teach. And Jack Cornfield said, I want to train you to teach. And my friends started saying, hey, we want you to teach us. You're less of an asshole now that you meditate. <laughs> and we would like to be less of assholes. And we would like to, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're on to something here. And so then I started these like little meditation groups in my living room. And then at some point, I, um, I, that year to live practice, I did that year to live practice in 1997, 96, 97. Um, and I'd been in and out of junior college. I was a high school dropout, but I'd gone back and GED and was doing some education. And when I was, you know, sober. I was, uh, you know, eight, nine years sober at that point, almost 10 years. And I was in India and, and for my second time in India. And I decided I'll go back to school. I'll become a psychotherapist. All I want to do is help people. Um, the whole becoming a Dharma teacher thing was, I was like, if I really had a year to live, I wouldn't become a teacher. I would just be a good student. <laughs> you know, even though like, that was starting to happen for me. And I was like, I wouldn't, I would just want to like get free. I want to be of service, but I'm not trying to create some sort of teaching platform. I just want to um, get free and, be, and help others. So anyways, when I went back to school, I started writing and uh, papers about my life and experience. And that became the first book, Dharma Punks. Uh, I started writing the light in the late 90s. And, you know, just saying, like, this is my experience of punk rock drug addiction and how recovery and Buddhism changed my life. And how rebellious, you know, how punk rock the Buddha was. And how, how, how you know... Uh, my whole life I've been going against the norm because the norm is ignorance. Ignorance is normal. Wisdom is rare. And, you know, punk rock is this fierce critique of the normal ignorance in our society and in our world. And I saw that the, this commonality with the Buddha, the Buddha who said, you know, go against greed, go against hatred, go against delusion rebel against the norm because normal people are asleep, completely asleep. And that is a really radical movement and in internal transformation to clear the dust from our eyes and to start seeing clearly and responding wisely. And I said, that's what I want. I'm, I'm committed. I'm in. Um, I know I'm going on and on anyway. So Dharma punks, you know, came out in 2003 and it, uh, you know, I just was like, I want to help, you know, this stuff has helped me. Anybody else interested? Any of my peers? Uh, and it, there was a, a, a warm reception, you know, a successful uh, a movement got started. And, and all of a sudden there was Dharma punks groups popping up. And I was kind of like, a, you know, punk rock is too DIY and anarchistic to organize. And I was just like, yeah, start your own punk, you know, Dharma punks group. And all of a sudden there was 20 and 30 and 40 Dharma punks groups around the country that I wasn't, uh, you know, facilitating. I was just saying like, hey, get together, using that recovery model of like, get together and talk about important stuff and meditate together. 
And then the second book, Against the Stream, where I said, okay, I've shared my story in Dharma Punks, but Against the Stream is, here's what the Buddha taught and how it is a radical, revolutionary, uh, you know, form of internal and external uh, rebellion. And here's how we can apply it to our lives, uh, both in the meditative discipline, developing mindfulness and compassion and forgiveness. And, and also here's how we can become activists in the world and how it really does apply to creating social change, positive change in the world. Against the Stream then also became um, the meditation centers. I was in San Francisco and then New York City and then landed in Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, we opened an Against the Stream center and then we had two centers and then opened a San Francisco center and affiliated groups in Boston and Nashville and Seattle. And, uh, and it became this very large um, movement of centers and I trained teachers and you know, authorized people to teach. And it grew and grew, you know, to, you know, the place where we were doing all of these retreats and all of these centers. Um, out of that came refuge recovery. My path was recovery. I didn't want against the stream to be only for recovery people because I didn't want to exclude all of the suffering people who weren't addicts, right? There's a lot of people who aren't addicts who are suffering and seeking some healing. So I always made the Buddhism that I was teaching against the stream Dharma punks open to everyone. But like half of our community were in recovery and half weren't. But more and more of the recovery people came to me and said, you know, we really need a Buddhist recovery because we have Buddhism over here and we have the 12 steps over here, which is very Christian, Judeo-Christian, uh, theistic. And we don't, you know, the reason we're over here in Buddhism is because we don't like theism that much and we like Buddhism, it's non-theism. And so after some, you know, contemplating it, I guess I had enough uh, what, ambition or <laughs> arrogance or whatever it was to say, okay, let's, I'll do it. I'll create a Buddhist recovery program. And so I wrote the book and, um, you know, launched Refuge Recovery, first in Los Angeles. In 2000, um, 14, when the book came out, there was a handful of refuge recovery meetings uh, from the communities that I had shared the, the process with and asked people to facilitate the meetings. And I think we're at the place now where there's almost 700 refuge meetings around the world and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's become a, a real viable program community support for people's recovery using the core teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. This is what the Buddha taught to end every form of suffering, including the suffering of addiction. Um, and so I feel quite happy that I was able to facilitate and launch that, and that so many people are saying, yes, this is what we're looking for. Um, and uh, you know, it's an alternative to the 12 steps, but also a lot of people use it in conjunction. There's people that are doing AA and NA and refuge you know, our other 12-step programs, and they're doing it together with um, the other programs. And then there's a lot of people who are um, kind of saying, actually, this makes more sense to me, so I'm just going to do refuge. And then there's also all of these people, I didn't foresee this happening, who are very 12-step resistant, we would say. People are like, I don't want to go to those. But when they found refuge, it actually made a bridge for them to be able to do 12-step too. 
to say, now that I have something that really makes sense to me, I can do this refuge, but I can also go and, and meet all of these great people and fellowship and, and have community with people and, and do some 12 step stuff. Cause now I have a Buddhist view that helps me understand my way, find my way with this, you know, Judeo Christian view. Beautiful. Thank you for, for laying the foundation for people who didn't know the scope and the size of what we're talking about here. That is a massive organic thing that you've built and has been built. So thank you for sharing all of that. Let's first of all, let me apologize for mispronouncing your last name. Uh, as a Traver, I get my name Travis and Trevor and Traver and whatnot all the time. So my apologies. I'd love to shift more into your personal life uh, because I think we're slowly setting the stage for the last part of this conversation. And this is something you and I talked about personally because it's something we're both engaged in. But I would love to hear, and this is for those of you who are about to turn your head sideways, how does BDSM and Buddhism interplay in your life? Because I think it's important that we set this before we move on. If you could tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, first, let me just um, say a couple of things about um, Buddhist sexuality. Please. Uh, you know, for, first of all, the Buddha was a celibate. He was somebody who chose to not have sex for the last 50 years of his life. Complete celibacy, no masturbation. And, you know, Buddhism for monastics is totally celibate. And so it is as a Western lay Buddhist, there is some challenges around having this spiritual practice that comes from a lineage that says actually celibacy is a better choice. Mm. If you're really serious about enlightenment, maybe you will not have sex at all. <laughs> so it's quite confusing for um, many Buddhists of like, well, how, where's the healthy balance where lay people were choosing to engage sexually? Um, but it leaves a lot to interpretation. The Buddha was pretty liberal about his uh, ideas around sexuality. Uh, the sexual misconduct is only um, behavior that is non-consensual or that is with somebody even uh, that is um, betrothed, you know, married, cheating is, is sexual misconduct. But the Buddha, he was pretty liberal around um, consenting adults. Mm -hmm but there was no specifics about what that behavior would be like. Um, here's one of the things that I think about BDSM, you know, and, and I don't know if you want to talk about the definitions of that term, mm -hmm. but you know, there's all of these different kinds of sexual, what we might call kinks or mm -hmm. fetishes or tendencies. And many of them are just very natural to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my opinion, not to be judged, but just to kind of bring mindfulness to what uh, is erotic to you. And each person has different uh, tendencies of, of what is uh, sexy and erotic. Mm -hmm. In mindfulness, we look at not just sensation. You know, the first foundation of mindfulness is what are you feeling? Mm -hmm. What are you feeling in your body? What are you feeling emotionally? What are the sensations, emotions, and at the sense doors, we, you know, when you're seeing something, when you're hearing something, smelling, tasting. So first of all, mindfulness is being present with what you're receiving at the sense doors. 
The second foundation of mindfulness is what you're receiving at the sense doors, what's your perception of that? Mm -hmm. Because both of us could be looking at something and you would, you know, like, let's say a piece of art. Let's say a piece of erotic art, since we're talking about sex. Mm -hmm. We could both be sitting there looking at that erotic art and your eye would say, pleasant, I like that. Mm -hmm. My perception of that erotic art is, that's very pleasant is your perception of it. Now, I might be looking at that and say, I think it's gross. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really, you know, we might have different perceptions of the exact same experience that we're seeing. Yeah. And my sense is that that's what uh, BDSM and different kinks are, is that different people have different perceptions of different experiences and sensations. Right. So sometimes um, we would say, you know, there's certain sensations where you, you know, so let's go into something like spanking. Sure. You spank one person on the ass and they say, ouch, that is painful. Mm -hmm. I don't like that at all. My perception of that sensation, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Someone else you spank on the ass and they say, thank you. Mm -hmm. May I have another? Mm -hmm. I think that is very pleasant and thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and I, and you know, so when we're talking about mindfulness of sensation and sensuality, I think a, a simple thing also for the, um, actually, if I could jump in and add one third piece of that, yeah. I think someone else would also take that spank on the ass and say, thank you. That was very healing. Okay. And that's an aspect of BDSM that doesn't get talked about a lot publicly because people can't wrap their heads past 50 shades of gray or the actual, just the physical viewing of the act or what the act triggers in them as far as their own judgment. Yeah. But I think we have, that's another element, the upper end of the, of the, uh, of the spectrum. We have, it's gross. Don't do that. Oh my God, that hurt. Oh wow. That was really titillating and exciting and erotic. And, ah. Uh, I actually needed to reprocess, relive, experience this expression that I don't get to in anywhere else in my given life, or I have been shamed for in the past. And this is the avenue and vehicle that I can use to that healing. I think that's an important addition. I agree with you. I know that what you're saying is true. I have a very dear friend who's a pro dominatrix, mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's really how she sees her work and, um, and and the work that she does that, that mm -hmm. is actually quite healing for people and i think that this is very important because often these kind of kinks and, and bdsm is pathologized and mm, it's all for sure kind of says says that it's this sort of negative thing um rather than the potential that for many people it's quite healing to have that expression definitely so the, the other piece that I was going to bring in, you know, the, the spanking, but then also like everybody's perception of um, spicy food, I think is always a good, you know, you, uh, you put a jalapeno in right. one person's mouth and they say, no, that's, it it out. I hate that. Yep. Please don't know spicy food. You give someone else spicy food and right. they say, more like, do you have any habaneros? Are there any of those ghost peppers? <laughs> that intense sensation of what is actually, and we know what spicy, spices actually burn. Yeah. It's actually triggering the pain, um, you know, taste buds. Yeah. 
And, but many of us like that pain. We say like, oh no, I really like hot sauce. That pain I experience as pleasure. Mm. And so I think that's a lot of what BDSM is and how you bring mindfulness to it is you say, what is my perception of this sensation? Mm -hmm. And does it feel healthy? And does it feel healing? Mm -hmm. And does it feel um, good? Mm -hmm. and, And of course, to both parties. And I, you know, the truth is I haven't been very engaged in any sort of BDSM community. It's never been um, uh, my scene. Okay. But after what has happened in my life this last year, I've become more interested in that and got more coaching from some of my friends in the BDSM scene of like, how did this happen? Mm -hmm. I believe that these situations were consensual Mm -hmm. and for some reason, I got the feedback that it what didn't feel, uh, you know, good to them. And so a lot of that stuff for a second, though, if you wouldn't mind, you said that uh, it, it, you're not involved in the scene, but that is your particular flavor of sexuality. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm very, uh, I'm a ver- versatile person. <laughs> it's one of your particular, it's one of your flavors. It is, yeah, there's definitely some of the, what would be considered um, primal sexuality mm-hmm. um, that is definitely part of uh, my natural expression. Okay. All right, good. One of the things I could jump in, because uh, I think it's really important that you touched on and that I love about the BDSM world and expression, even though they have their own challenges. And one of the things I've found to be most helpful as someone in the same, not necessarily greater community and scene, but having that be my preferred sexual expression is how much conversation there is around consent, which just what I was going to say. entire vanilla world doesn't want to talk about it. It goes, oh my God, they're spanking each other. But you guys haven't had a single conversation at all about what's okay and what's not okay. But in the in a BDSM scenario or relationship, it's down to the fine detail of, is it okay if I pull on your little toe? Let alone the more extreme expressions that people think of when they hear BDSM. And I'm coming at a lot a good portion of my life was spent as a professional fighter. And I look at that scenario as people like, how the hell do two people get in a cage and beat the shit out of each other? Say they do it with consent. And they're both happy to be there. And yeah, you're going to get banged up a little bit. You might get really hurt. But at the end of the day, you shake hands and hug and go, wow, thanks. I needed you for that. You needed me for that. The rest of the world thinks we're nuts, but we don't give a fuck because we needed that. But the consent piece, and I want that highlighted as we talk further, but if you had something you were going to add in, I'd love to hear it. No, I think that going to the consent conversation is important. I was just going to say what you were saying that has been a great education for me is how much negotiation mm-hmm. and sometimes even contracts. Yeah, for sure. Sign contracts in these situations, um, which is not some, you know, that's not been part of my, I, I feel quite, uh, I always felt quite committed to communicating. Yeah. But maybe not all of the um, specific details of everything. I, I, I was very, I've, I've always been very kind of clear about like, what do you like and what do you don't like? And these are, this is what I like and don't like. And right. that kind of communication about sex has been very natural to me and actually erotic. I like to talk about 
about what, you know, what we may or may not do. Right, right, right. I, I've told when I teach guys this in the form of consent and I hear, doesn't that take the, the sexiness out of it? Say, like, oh, no, 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 no. It's like getting to see every single ingredient that you get to cook with, smell it, taste it, feel it, and be like, oh, wow, I just looked at the whole menu. Now I get to decide and orchestrate, what is this meal going to be? Yeah. It's not unarousing. It's, it's not linear and clinical and like, okay, do you like this? Check. No. no, it's usually a very engaging, uh, lively conversation. And for those of you that haven't had a full consent conversation with your partner, tonight would be a really great night. Give it a go. And if you have questions about that, feel free to, uh, to, hit, up, to hit me up. So if, if I could, more, please, I please, please. One more thing. Sure. Before we go, um, I, absolutely, let's talk about consent. So, so important. Yeah. And, um, but I just want to, you know, in this general, like BDSM and Buddhism. Yeah. My feeling is mindfulness is to be brought to every activity of our life. When the mm. Buddha teaches sitting meditation, he says, now bring this into your walking and standing and when you're laying down and bring this into every single activity of your life present time non-judgmental investigative awareness mm. be present and and see how you're feeling and how you're responding to those sensations and feelings and so we have to bring that into our sexuality mm. whether your sexuality is completely vanilla traditional <laughs> whatever we want to call it or it is not that mm -hmm. we bring that kind of awareness to all of our activities mm -hmm. and so we bring it to our sexuality buddhists mm -hmm. are not very good at talking about this about so, sexuality about sexuality and nobody in, is sexuality yeah yes nobody we are. Is. especially religion isn't yeah. Yeah. and you know some of it's our you know, very, you know, oppressed, puritanical Western conditioning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like even like Americans in general are more repressed than Europeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we have these American Buddhists who have this celibate teacher and they're not talking about sex. Mm. Over and over when I'm giving a Dharma <laughs> talk about sex, people who've been practicing Buddhism for decades come up to me and say, you're the first Dharma teacher oh. I've ever heard really talk about sex. Yeah, especially here in the U.S., we need a massive, you know, it's, I think it's like $70 trillion, I just made that up, no, uh, amount of money going into pornography, and yet if we see a nipple on television, we lose our collective fucking minds, and we also do not have a single conversation of between, or very few of us have conversations with our partners, uh, what turns you on? What do you enjoy? Just that, just that very, very first question. I've talked to dozens and dozens of women over the past year about their experiences with dating men. And so many of them say, I just was never asked what turned me on, nor do I really think he cared. And I think that is a colossal challenge as a men's person, as a men's movement person. And that's what I do appreciate about BDSM and the conversation. But I'd love to touch on real quick while we stay on this subject is two aspects specifically around Buddhism. And I know you kind of touched on it, but how would you reconciles kind of the, the obtuse word power dynamics sexually in relation to Buddhism and then the infliction of pain, even though knowing it's being perceived as n not n a negative in the face of Buddhism. That, do those questions make sense? Sure. Please. 
They make sense. I don't know if I have uh, any real coherent answers for them. I mean, I feel like power dynamics are just natural. Mm, There's always power exchange. And, and I, in my own life, sometimes I'm sitting at the feet of my teachers and mm-hmm. they're in the power position and I'm bowing. <laughs> you know, I was just in Thailand touching my forehead to the, you know, the, the ground in front of my teachers and, you know, uh, in the very submissive posture. Mm-hmm. And then often I'm in the power position. And, and I feel like in sex too, there's, there is, you know, there's a give and a take and an exchange. Right. So I just feel like, you know, power dynamics are fluid and mm-hmm. natural. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's ever a time where it's like, hey, we're always completely here. No, sometimes you're on top and sometimes I'm on top. And yep. that's what completely makes it agree. <laughs> yeah, Completely agree. I like to get on top for a little while. <laughs> Catch my breath. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as the, uh, you know, like the, I think you said inflicting, let's call it an intense sensation. Okay. Somebody that they're perceiving as pleasant. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. That they're, you know, that, that that's something that, that could even be healing or at least enjoyable for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems uh, seems generous. Seems mm-hmm. mutual and seems completely. I know some people are going to pathologize all of it and say like, "Oh no, you're hurting somebody," and the only mm-hmm. reason they like to be spanked or whatever it is is because of their own past right. uh, trauma or something like that. I don't think it's true. I think it's a projection. But I don't think it's always true. I think that very often it's very natural for some people to want to be submissive. Right. Some people to want to be dominant. Definitely. Those roles. Yeah. I I wish the whole country too would take a deep breath and hear that. Sorry. I wish everybody could just go, okay, it's okay. The APA just put something out saying aggression and dominance is bad. Yet it's, it's natural to a lot of humans. I feel like it's quite natural in the consensual, definitely appropriate, appreciated mm-hmm. um, scenario with consciousness present. Absolutely. I have a client that I, a counseling client just um, yesterday, we were doing a session right at the end of our, our counseling session. She um, kind of like shut down for a moment and said, I want to talk about something that's important, but I don't, mm. it's hard. And, and you know what it was is that she wanted to talk about loving being submissive, mm. but that she had shame about it. Mm. Yeah, I, I run. And we didn't yeah. get all the way into it, but that was my sense: is that it was you know the societal stigma mm-hmm. on her wanting to be dominated, mm-hmm. and that that was pleasant and healing and wonderful for her had been so pathologized mm. that she had to bring it to therapy. Right rather than just, you know, a loving acceptance of, oh, love what you love. Right. And find someone who can facilitate that experience for you with an extraordinary amount of space holding, trust, and care. And you've got yourself, you've got yourself some, some medicine, let's call it what it is. You've got yourself an experience that's going to be both evolutionary, revolutionary, and healing. And isn't that what we're all after anyway? I think the demonization of power dynamic, especially in sex, is one of my goals for this year is to shine a whole bunch of light on it and just open up the conversation even further. 
let's transition if we can. So we've set the framework of who you are, what you've built, and certain ways that you interact with the world. And if you wouldn't mind... How it has crumbled? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind filling in everybody listening on, on what's going on in your life. And, and I want to, I have to say this because there are people who are just about ready to write me an email. Uh, we're hearing one side of this and the other parties aren't here. And so we're not trying to decide guilt or innocence or speak on behalf of someone who's not here. I just want to have a conversation with the person who is here. Noah, if you would. Oh, aren't we just about out of time? Sorry. <laughs> we're going to go, man. This thing's, I, I have I took the night off. We're rolling, brother. Let it go. Um, so, um, series of events um, about a year ago mm -hmm. in my life and with my community um, that began with uh, a woman that I had been seeing for a couple of months mm -hmm. and who, um, in one way or another, you know, after we had slept together several times. And after one of the last times we slept together, she contacted me and said, you know, I want to talk to you about consent. Mm. And in my, in a text message and in my uh, memory of it, we had had a lot of conversations about likes and dislikes and mm -hmm. uh, everything within, within it and, and um, within our sexuality. And we had many experiences where she had said, okay, let's not do that or let's stop doing this. And her communication with me had been pretty good, I believe. And okay. mine with her had been good. And so when she contacted me after our last experience, I was like, how, what do you, what do you mean consent? Like, why would this even be a question? Because you didn't say anything to me at the time about being unhappy. And I know you can because you have in the past. Got it. So, um, and she just refused to communicate with me about it. That was the end of the conversation. That was the end. Yeah, really. I mean, at one point she said, I wanted you to come see my therapist. And I said, you know, we've been seeing each other for a couple of months. I'm, you know, like doing a couple session. I would like to just hear yeah. from like to communicate directly with you. Person with to person. Yeah. And she was not willing to speak with me. But several months later, the police came to my home and said, this woman has filed an assault charge against you. Mm, a sexual you, assault charge. Yes. Okay. Yeah, sexual assault. And they said, do you know who she is? And I said, yeah, of course. We were dating, you know, a few months ago. And mm -hmm. so then it just shut down to like, okay, I have to get a lawyer. And um, she, she filed a criminal charge. Just so we're clear. Filed yeah. a uh, complaint. The police looked into it and said, we're not going to charge you with anything. Gotcha. Um, you know, so there was never a charge, but the accusation itself yeah. then came from around, um, I, I don't know what happened, but then her meditation teacher, she was not a student of mine. She was a, a different form of Buddhism. Her teacher sent a letter to all of my organizations saying, my student said Noah sexually assaulted her. And then that led to this like, investigation and my colleagues at Against the Stream saying, we're gonna suspend you. Now they already completely knew about it. I told them about it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. One of the other teachers there had dated this woman. They were intimately aware of the whole situation. Okay. Um, but for some other maybe political reasons, mm. and this was at, right at the kind of, 
beginning of the Me Too, they said, we're just going to remove you. And then they publicly said, we're doing this investigation and told the whole world about it. Oh, wow. Which led to the demise of our whole community. Wow. Some of it was led, I believe, um, kind of led and somewhat intentionally uh, based in some resentment in, in my community. Okay. So I don't want to get too much into that. Mm-hmm. Can I circle back to the... I'll just, you know, I'll just... Sure, sure. In the investigation, um, after five months, you know, I finally, it came back to me and they said, you know, there's two other women who said that they had been on a date with you. Okay. And your, um, although I hadn't been sexual, you know, intercourse with either of them, but that your um, way that you kissed or that the way that you were with them was um, too intense or too aggressive for them. Okay. And so then, you know, it's from one woman that I had been dating to two other kind of women that I'd been on one or two dates with. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, there's three women who have felt harmed by you. Mm. And, you know, and it was very confusing to me. And I kind of landed in this, like, I'll take full responsibility for anything that I've done that's been unskillful. Okay. And, you know, like if I've caused harm, I'll take responsibility. I'll make amends. Um, my sense of either each one of these experiences was that it felt consensual and like there was communication at the time. And that this is like, you know, six months later, they're coming and saying, you know, I didn't say anything at the time, but mm-hmm. I actually was very unhappy about what had happened or somewhat unhappy about what had happened. Was there a conversation about consent? Like, do you feel like you clearly knew the rules of consent because we can't speak on their behalf, but do you feel like there was an understanding of like, cool, we've had the consent conversation. It's not just a feeling out thing. It's not energy or I, it's like, yep, I know what consent is. Do you feel like that was covered with each of these three cases? I think I would say no. I think that mostly it wasn't a clear, it was, are we going to kiss? Oh, yes, we're kissing. Right. You know, like, like uh, on the first date, you know, like, okay, we had dinner. Are we going to kiss goodnight or not? It yeah. wasn't a, let's have a conversation about whether there's consent to kiss. It was right. just, you know, kind of the lean in. Do you want right. to kiss? Oh, yes, you do want to kiss. Okay. You know, and so it was very much that, like, clearly consensual making out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, all three of them would say, yes, totally consensual beginning. Mm. And then at some point, um, one of the accusations was that after we had been making out for some time, I tried to put my hand down her pants. Okay. And, and that I didn't have consent for that. You know, that it was you stopped from doing that, that the ass, you know, grabbing the butt was okay and boobs were okay, but third base was not okay. Were you you physically stopped from doing that or verbally stopped from doing that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. He said said no. And I said, okay. And you stopped. Totally stopped. Okay. So to me, that's not a violation of consent. That's an adherence to consent was no, 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 don't go there. Don't go there. You didn't. Uh, what, uh, the way that I heard the accusation was that she felt unsafe and that she shouldn't have asked, had to ask me to stop. Can we unpack that a little bit? So it was just a general sense of a lack of sense of safety? That's, I mean, in, the, in what I read from her you know, was that she said, I felt uh, un- unsafe. 
and that um, I shouldn't have had to ask him to stop in that way, that he was being too uh, intense for me. Okay. And I've separate, I've read both of the Jezebel stories and then there's, so those are the two, let's call them less than skillful dating stories because those were articulated stop. You did perhaps you shouldn't have, or you didn't have a green light to, which I know some people get very, very upset with this, but I believe is different than uh, an actual sexual assault. And that sounds like that's what we're talking about in the third case with the woman who you had been with multiple times. So if I can repeat the question with the woman who you had been with multiple times, did you feel like you clearly knew the rules of consent with her? And that, again, we can't speak on her behalf. Was there a conversation that happened? A hundred percent. We had, yes, we had had the conversation. We'd continued to have the conversations um, we had talked about safe words, like everything Beautiful. was really, the communication was really good. Do you feel that you abided by that, those rules of consent? I do. So do you feel like you did anything wrong? And I know wrong's a loaded word. So I haven't been able to identify a moment in our interaction that I felt like I wasn't any, you know, uh, that I was unskillful. But here's the thing, Trevor. She walked away from it feeling harmed. That's what she reported later. So I'm, you know, I don't know what happened. Right. I, she didn't tell me at the time. There was no moment where she said stop and I didn't stop. There was none of that. Mm-hmm. So she walked away from it and said, you know, that wasn't good for me, which left me confused saying like, well, why didn't you tell me? And to this day, I've never been able, I've never been informed of like, what about it didn't feel good. After we were together, we laid in bed. She had made me cookies. We ate cookies. We talked for some time. She didn't tell me that there was anything amiss. We kissed goodnight. She went home. Mm. So a couple days later, when all this happened, I was like, how could that be? Why wouldn't you have told me at the time that you were unhappy? Because you are having trouble making a leap from something didn't feel good to I need to go to the police. And I think we need to, we need to talk about that in the frame of me too. And in the frame of what the ramifications of that action set are, given what you've now experienced. Absolutely. So important. Um, And, you know, and I'm still at a loss for how did it get to that? So when your organization came to you, did they do the same math that I just did and still come up with a different number at the bottom? Where I say, okay, wasn't asked to stop, wasn't given any kind of physical notification, verbal notification. The after effect appears to have been we laid in bed. And as a human, to me, and just as a human, to me, that sounds like, okay, this was a kosher experience. This was a consensual sexual experience. No matter what transpired within it, as far as if there was aggression, violence, that was all consensual. To me, this sounds like this was a positive experience. I'm not saying that it was because clearly there was either, there was a misinterpretation. So your organization did the same, did that same math and came up with a different number. I think that the only math that was done was, you know, they hired a professional investigator and then, um, you know, 
all that came back, because actually I know the same thing that you know about this, because I, I wasn't actually told anything, but I know from that Jezebel article that the investigator sat with the, uh, um, the uh, detective and, and the woman that I had been dating, and that all they said was something about that interaction was non-consensual. Something about it. it it's never, I've never been told, and, and I don't think anybody was ever told what about it was non-consensual. It started consensual, obviously, if she would 100% and it continued, but that at some moment she felt that there was no longer consent. Now, where I'm, I'm sitting over here, having been in the con experience and saying, I was never notified that consent was removed. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been um, now aware of some of the consent stuff where they say you should check in every few minutes to say, is this still okay? Mm. I was not doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I was not continuing to say, is this still okay? I know it was okay five minutes ago, but is it okay now? Do you believe that should be a parameter for consent, given what you've been through? And, and even hearing that, uh, I'm curious who that puts the onus on just to be a 50-50 participant in an act, right? I think that is a massive question that needs to get chewed on and looked at from a number of different angles of, does that make you entirely responsible for consent does it make you and is it just because you're the male if suddenly it switches and now you're in a submissive position is she required to check in with you every five minutes from what i understand that that is the sort of new definition and working definition that some of the universities are talking about and that the onus is on the male all of the time on the male all of the time that's some of what i've read okay Universities and I are thinking differently these days, but uh, let's, let's continue. How do you feel? How do you feel given all of this? How do you feel on every, on the, and with, with about the people you are involved with, with about your organization, you as a human having to live through what appears to be from your side, a massive amount of unfairness. And we can take the like, let's take the politicalization of it. Like, a, you know, there may have been a, for lack of a better term, conspiracy, but, or this fed into a conspiracy. But you as a man, how do you feel about this? I have a lot of different feelings about it. Yeah. As a man, I feel like me too is a really good thing. Beautiful. I do too. I feel like the imbalance and oppression uh, in this country and in this world towards women, the, the lack of respect and equality is uh, a travesty mm -hmm. and terrible and needs to be rectified. So I sit in a place where I feel very much in favor of taking down predators and taking down people who are abusing their power 100%. So I sit in that place when I look at what's going on in the world, I think there's a lot of good coming of, of mm -hmm. the wave. Um, and and I, so, so it's quite hard for me to sit in my personal place because um, my view is that this is a good and necessary movement that I support. 
um, and that I, I believe in equality. Mm. And, and I believe that people, that women and men, even though there are power dynamics, mm -hmm. uh, that actually there's, you know, that we are equal. Uh, and I really believe that. And I've actually, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life trying to support and be an ally. And, um, mm -hmm. and I'm very much a dude. <laughs> right, right, right. And it, from what it appears, you're also very much, uh, I'm not going to use the word victim, but you are a, you have, Me Too has also, I don't even know how to articulate this. Um, you are an unintended consequence of Me Too, if what you say is correct. And we can also say, I'm also a massive proponent of equality, which is why I'm curious about why consent belongs only to the male, but maybe we'll just put that to the side. How do you personally feel? How, I, how I personally feel is, um, you know, I feel sad that I caused any harm to anyone. You know, like I've really, I, I really do my best to live my life in a way that I'm helping and not hurting. Um, and so, you know, when people say you've hurt me, uh, mm. I, I believe them, you know, I, and I also know whether it was intentional or unintentional. Right. And so, um, you know, I can land in this place of like, oh, I didn't intentionally cause harm to anybody. And this, you know, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But also if somebody says that they were hurt, then I say, okay, I believe you and I'll apologize, you know, because I'm sure. That but are I'm you sorry if, if you've, are you sorry the right word? Yeah, no, right? I, I, I regret that anything that I've done has caused harm to anyone else. I have, you know, I empathize and have compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, anything that I've, it's true. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, yes, some of this just feels like it's not true. It's hard mm -hmm. for me to wrap my mind around it being true. But I, you know, I also have enough humility, I hope, to know that I'm mm -hmm. not perfect and I'm sure I've caused harm and, you know, I've offended people. You know, when Against the Stream did their investigation, uh, one of the teachers there started spreading there's 10 accusations against mm -hmm. Noah. And, you know, then everybody was like, Noah sexually assaulted 10 different women. Mm -hmm. What it turned out was that there were three women who had, you know, complaints mm -hmm. against him. And then there were seven to 10 other ones of people saying, like, Noah offended me in a <laughs> Dharma talk. I think Noah's... Uh, I find it. Noah offensive. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. all of that, you know, like, um, so there was a lot of criticism that were part of that 10. Yeah. And then there were three women who I had dated. Um, so I know that I'm not perfect and I know that I cause harm sometimes. Mm -hmm. I also know that I've never forced, you know, intentionally forced anybody um, sexually in any way. Mm -hmm. And that actually I, you know, we were talking about BDSM earlier. Mm -hmm. If it's not mutually enjoyable, I, I don't have any sadism in me that right. likes people. I'm no, actually no, no. I'm very sensitive. Yeah. Um, I don't want to cause harm to anybody. I only want to do it if it's fun for both of us. Mm -hmm. uh, Agreed. So I, I know, you know that's, that's totally true about me. Um, so I feel sad. I feel... Uh, no, are you at all saying what you think should be said? No. Because a huge, it feels like a huge, like archetypal 
I got me to let me say these things. I feel bad. I feel sad. I can put myself in her position. I have to play small. I can't. That comes down given no matter what the situation is. It's sincere for me. Like I I actually do have empathy Mm -hmm. and I've been practicing compassion meditation for 30 years. You know, it doesn't, it's not what I'm supposed to say. It's actually how I feel. But it's also very, you know, it's it's uh, convoluted because I also feel totally betrayed. Mm. Closest friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, you know, a huge harm was caused to our community that was absolutely unnecessary. Right. Um, the destruction of something that I built for 30 years. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I also feel um, angry and... Um, and, and totally like sitting in the sort of rubble and the dust settling of like, how the fuck did this happen? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and then the mind says this totally didn't need to happen. Now where I really go is into acceptance and forgiveness. This didn't have to happen. Um, this was not in my, you know, <laughs> this was not deserved. This was not the appropriate way to handle these accusations. Mm-hmm. There was a way to do it for the community, with the community, for this to be an opportunity for healing. Mm. But instead, it was an opportunity. It was used as a, a way to really cause deep, deep harm to a lot of people, not just me. Yeah. Before acceptance and forgiveness, I often punch holes in the wall. Is there anger? And I don't have your depth of practice or scope of practice. Was there like, was there rage? Was there anger? Like you lost a fuck. You lost your, your life's mission. Did you jump from Holy fuck. I can't believe this happened to, to acceptance and forgiveness. Or did you want to fuck some shit up? Yeah. And if you didn't, why not? And I'm just, and this is, I'm asking for the, like, where, where's the, is there, was there anger? Was there rage? Like, talk to me, man. Uh, not much because I've been meditating for 30 years and because I've trained my mind to feel the anger and to respond to it with kindness and with compassion and with forgiveness. And it's become my habit. Mm. So I don't punch walls and I don't, you know, what I have noticed a lot and have, and have talked about a lot is that my mind has been giving me terrible advice <laughs> about, you know, oh, you should get revenge or you should do this or you should sue everybody. And like my okay. mind, you know, so it's not that there's no okay. thoughts or feelings, mm-hmm. but I don't believe my mind. And I don't obey, you know, I talked about 30 years ago, sitting in that juvenile hall cell. Yeah. Where my mind was giving me bad advice. And I started to learn to break my addiction Mm. and identification with my mind. So now I turn towards my mind and I say, that's a terrible idea. You're encouraging me to create more suffering on top of an already very painful situation. Mm. I think I'll choose acceptance and forgiveness. And to people who are curious about bypass, can you explain how that's not bypass and what bypass would look like in that in the face of that? Bypass would look like if we didn't allow ourselves to feel it. So you felt that anger, you felt that rage. And I sit with it and I 
you know, and I, and I, and I cried and I went into the mm. sweat lodge and I, you know, and I yelled, you know, like I, I had some cathartic experiences. Okay, good. So this wasn't clean. This was, this, there was there a little messiness. I don't know. I think you'd have to ask people around me. <laughs> some of my Fair friends, enough. some of my friends who are tuned in here actually yeah. say a little bit messy. I don't know. I, okay. I feel like I've been pretty just like steadily going like, okay, this is my practice. Okay. Now, the other thing, here's what I want to maybe end with. I know we're running out of time. We're good on time. We're going to, I have one more question and we'll wrap it well, up. I'm running out of time. Okay. Okay. Oh, thank you. Gotcha. 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 Here's a reflection that I have about this whole experience for me. I love intensity. Mm, me too. Part of what got me into all of this, it's part of what built Dharma Punks and Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery is that I love to like experience, uh, you know, novel things and take risks. And, you know, I opened meditation centers with, and signed five-year leases without any ability to pay for it. Mm. Trust that like the money would come. <laughs> and then it came, you know, I like these sort of intense situations. Yeah. So, this experience in my life where I lost almost all of my income. Yeah. I lost, you know, all of my opportunities to almost all of my opportunities to be of service and to continue. I, you know, they shut down my, my friends and colleagues closed my meditation community. Mm. My board of directors that I appointed at refuge recovery is going to take me to court to try to get the trademark and the, my, my book rights from me like this. It's so intense. Mm. It's like game of Thrones. It's totally it's like just game of Thrones. It's castle intrigue. It's totally that. <laughs> take down the thing. Totally. Um, it's very unpleasant on some level. Yeah. It's very intense. And I, in some level, am enjoying the opportunity to practice mm. what I preach. Wow, that's profound. To practice big compassion, big forgiveness mm. in the midst of big pain and big loss and big wow. grief. I am not bypassing it. I am feeling it. Mm. And I am responding to it. And I am being with it. Wow. Thank you for that. I think that's magic. Yeah. In wrapping up, where can people find more of you if they're interested? Where can they find <laughs> what you're doing next or what you're continuing to build? Because I believe that there's still a lot of people who see the message or want the message or are dis or that still want more of what you have to offer. Um, my website, I just, I'm building a new website, noahlevine.com. And that's where I'm doing a lot of my stuff and scheduling, uh, you know, Beautiful. and, and um, going to start streaming. I stream my Monday night class every week on, on Facebook, on the Noah Levine public page on Facebook, Monday night at 730 uh, Pacific time. So that's free uh, Dharma. A lot of people tune into that also on the Instagram, Noah Levine 108 page. Um, and you know, that's it. And you know, everything has sort of crumbled and I'm going to rebuild. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks thank you for, for sharing this. I know this was not in your living room. Yeah. Thank you. Um, for those of you who are interested in what I'm doing, you can find me at, at Traver Bohm, T R A V E R 
B-O-E-H-M on Instagram, as well as manuncivilized.com. And every Thursday night, unless I'm traveling, we're in here um, doing, doing these kinds of conversations, finding interesting people that you may not know and having, you know, having the conversations that people aren't willing to have, but I believe are so, so necessary. So with that, guys, please, let's take a minute. Put your hands together if it's something you do. Noah, if you'd like to end us in any way, I'd be happy to have you end us. If not. Sure. Um, it's my understanding as a Buddhist that there is merit developed when we discuss important things and we dedicate our lives to creating positive change. I believe you're doing that. I know I'm trying to do that and that most of the people tuning in are with us. So if we could all share that merit and blessings of our actions outward in all directions. May we create a positive change on this planet where there is more equality, where there is more kindness, where there's more wisdom. And uh, together may we, cre may we create this change in a way that no individual can create all on our own. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you guys. As I like to end, go be uncivilized. See you next Thursday. Cheers. Thank you, Noah.